poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. Energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. Look at any big policy political, social or economic issue and chances are one organization has something strong to say. Weeks ago, there or thereabouts, the Chief Executive Officer of the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Alan McCorkey, delivering a keynote address at the SA National Energy Association's annual conference, said energy for all was an ambitious aim that would occupy stakeholders for the next three decades and beyond. He then went on to beat a drum that we've all heard before, the need to improve skill and capability as well as policy and regulation. Now, I happened to be chairing the conference that uh, he was talking at, and I was struck by two things. One, his being on the phone dealing with problems moments before he spoke. I happened to eavesdrop. I won't tell you what the problems were. But... I also sensed a real optimism as far as he was concerned, and I said to myself, he'll make an excellent guest for this podcast. So welcome to the MoneyWeb podcast, Fix SA. My name's Jeremy Maggs. Just to remind you, our guests in coming weeks will be asked how we can make things better, how do we improve matters, how in the shortest space of time can we become a competitive and successful nation. So how would Alan McCorkey fix South Africa? A very warm welcome, Alan. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for the invite, Jeremy, and uh, uh, good morning to your listeners as well. You said this six months ago. There's nothing worse than being reminded about a quote, but um, it makes a lot of sense. You said official unemployment and the rate climbing to a record 35.3% uh, rate is a, is a ticking time bomb, threatening, you said, not only the existence of our businesses, but the republic itself as we know it. Now, as we record this podcast, you'll know there's been a slight improvement in the unemployment rate, but marginally. Is that the country's biggest problem, in your opinion? Well, Jeremy, no, without any doubt, because we speak democracy, we, we speak colonialism, we speak apartheid, we speak exclusion, and then we get to this particular point 28 years after democracy, and many people and millions of South Africans feel that they're excluded from that democracy dividend. So that's a very big issue. Because if you have so many young people, you look at those numbers, they've come down maybe a percent or so. But if you look at those numbers as they relate to the youthful people, you know, people who are still young, there's a really serious problem that's coming up into South Africa, especially amongst those young people, more than 3 million people or so the last time I checked the figures, who are not in school, who are not in employment, and who are not in any training facility. And that's a very, very big issue because the disillusionment that's mm. brewing there, we may end up having our own Arab Spring a lot more sooner than we thought we could. So we do need to do something that is decisive, that is sustainable, that is permanent in terms of addressing that issue of excluding people from economic activity. And that creates poverty and unemployment, of course, yes. Let's get to the fix in just a moment. But I read somewhere that the average age of South Africa is 27. 
seven. Yeah. So so many of those people that exactly. you refer to fit into that cohort. I want to come back to the ticking time bomb analogy. You've just used the Arab spring descriptor. How close then are we to that bomb exploding? We may not know in terms of timelines, but we do know that there are signs very clearly that many people are losing hope. And to that particular extent, if you finish school today, there is no certainty, especially if you're black and young, or and woman in particular, there is no certainty today what your future actually looks like. And that in itself creates a very serious problem of complex trauma because you're traumatized just by being a South African. And then the future that you see is so bleak and you don't actually know what exactly is this that is actually going to happen. There isn't anything. It can't be the 350. The 350 is not a solution to the problem permanently. So we we need to be able to give young people hope and uh, we need to be able to understand that these are our future markets particularly as business in particular we need to understand that we need to develop that because that system that excludes people eventually will exclude us it will eventually create a situation where there is no product and there's no service that you can sell to people because people have absolutely no income whatsoever but how do you give that constituency hope it's almost impossible isn't it it's not impossible. I think that many of the commentators in South Africa, and I think that many people also in leadership positions need to appreciate one thing. That one thing is, we don't have another country. This is the only one that we have. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think, is that South Africa is full of people who are usually talented. There's a lot of talent in South Africa in terms of the problems that we're facing None of them cannot be resolved. And I, I know there are people who believe, oh, the problems are so meager, you know, 41% expanded unemployment. That's the number that we see with no hope. No, it is not true. We are not the only people. We're not unique in any way in terms of looking at us. You look at China before Deng Xiaoping came in. China was experiencing exactly the same problems. But in the last 30, 35 years, they've managed to pull at least 650 million people out of poverty into the middle and upper income groups. We're not the only one by any means. You look at all the countries that have managed to move their economies from developing to developed in the last 100 years, at least non-Western countries, about eight of them, Japan, right, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, Australia, Israel, and yes, Russia. And you look at the things that they were actually able to do. All those places come from exactly the same place because they had to start from scratch. So South Africa has got an opportunity. This is a leadership challenge that all of us need to rise up to, to take up. Because you, you're going to find too many societies in the world today who've got this type of an endowment. Number one, this country is potentially very rich in terms of our mineral resources. We've got the seas, we've got two seas access all over the place. We've got really, really smart people who are part of Africa that looks at us as leaders. And there's so much richness in the ground in all of this particular Africa. We just need to gather ideas and the right people and the right culture and the values to go make it actually work. I want to talk to you about how to mine the leadership nugget in just a moment, but I want to continue on the hope theme if we can. You say to me that we don't need to give up hope. So how do you start the process of infusing hope? How do you tell the young matriculant that it's going to be okay? Well, you know, one of the things that we need to do, we can't just say things. We need to be able to put things on the table. In other words, we need to drive programs. I mean, one of those things. But we're not very good at that in this country. We're not very, we're good, very at good at talking. Exactly. We're yes. very good at planning. Absolutely. We're very good at blueprinting. Yes. But we don't seem to turn any of that yes. into action. You know, Slim Ismail, uh, someone that uh, whose ideas I like a lot, and, and, and Slim wrote that book around exponential organizations. One of the things that he likes to say is that when you drive disruptive innovation in large organizations, the immune system of that organization comes out to attack. 
And the best way you can always be able to do that, because large organizations, whether it's a country, whether it's a political system, are actually built to resist change and to limit any damage that any risk can actually do. So when you try to talk change, people climb up and they don't want to discuss anything. So one of the fundamental things that we need to be able to do is to sit back and say, of the things that we're currently doing now, of all the ideas that we have on the table, what are we going to do to change them? Because we know that they're not working. It doesn't matter how many times the president can come up to SONA and present a lot of uh, ideas about things that are going to do. It doesn't matter what the Reserve Bank, people are going to say, my friend researcher can come up and say, I'm protecting the rent and I'm protecting the, 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 the inflation. We know that the ideas that we have today are not... But they're hollow unless something That's happens. It. So we then need to sit down and say we're going to change things. In other words, we're going to change not just things, but we're going to change ourselves. We're going to question our own decision-making in the manner in which we've done things up until now. On the issue of youth in particular, we need to be able to be very clear what is this that is required in terms of the development of competences and skills because there's nothing we can do for the youth other than giving them opportunities to develop their own skills and to develop their own competences and to gain the experience so that they are able themselves not just to be looking for employment opportunities but they themselves can create employment so we need to have a very clear mostly in the tech space absolutely we need to be very clear around the design that we want to do number one fix the education the issue around universal access to high quality education is non-negotiable in other words you can never have a situation where you've got schools in the black townships that don't have resources but you've got schools Mm. in the private school sector that have resources not a question of taking from the rich to give to the poor but it's a question of the government if you look at what paul kagame is doing in rwanda where in fact people are now moving their kids away from private schools to the public schools because he has fixed the problem fundamentally of resources. High quality education is being provided in Rwanda and places like that. And I guess that's why Boris believed that he can send any of the people who want to come in, into England back to Rwanda. But we need to fix education, access in particular. When these children are graduating from high school, it should never be a question of income that determines whether you can get into a university. We've got technology today that can create that access, that can create access in a way that is really fundamental and that can shift people in a big, 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 big way. But we need to be able to stand back and say, none of the things that we're doing now will work for us. We're going to sit back. We're going to make a determination very clear. There should never be any child who finishes school who is not able to access an institution of higher learning because they don't actually have money. And it's not just a question of money for paying tuition fees because we have huge issues around the issue of nutrition, for instance. You can't go to school when you don't have the right nutrition because you're not going to perform creates a lot of cognitive-related issues for you. Healthcare is another fundamental issue. Lots of people come to school with fundamental health issues that are actually hidden, including mental health, by the way. So we need to fix the issue at that particular level in our diagnostic, and then we need to go and resolve the problem very adequately. Part of the raison d'etre, the remit of this podcast, is not only to identify the problems, uh, but to also push the guests a little bit into a corner to offer some solutions, should I say. So let's talk about education. I absolutely concur with you that making education, particularly at a tertiary level, more accessible to anyone and that funding should not be preclusionary as far as that's concerned. Everyone agrees with that. Where do you find the money? How do you make it happen? What's the time frame? Yes. I think that the time frame is that we need to agree that we have a 20-year, maybe 30-year program 
just like I have quoted maybe a, a case of China, mm. maybe Japan, maybe Taiwan, Hong Kong probably took a shorter period of time purely because they had a very benevolent England uh, looking after them. However, we always argue there is no money, but we never raise the issue around how to arbitrage the assets that we already have. I was raised in banking, I come from banking, and to that extent, it's not a question of the money not being there, it's a question of how we leverage the assets that we have to be able to do those. So what example. assets and how yes. do you leverage them? Let me give an example. I was speaking to one of the politicians the other day. We actually made a presentation to one of the big government departments that deals with resources to say, if you look at DBE, for instance, the Department of Basic Education, you will find that at the last count, I think about two years ago when I looked at this thing, they had something like 27,000 schools. On average, about 4,000 square meters per school. That gives you 81 million square meters. Sell that. Why do you want to hold on to the asset, which is not necessarily generating income for you, but is actually costing you money? Give that to the private sector. Let's create a property-owning company that's going to get listed, whether it's in Johannesburg, whether New York, whether uh, Hong Kong, or whatever the case might be. Predicated on whether the private sector wants it. Is it a desirable asset? It is a desirable asset for one good reason. Here's the reason. I'm buying it from you as a government, and you are going to give me a lease on it. And the list is going to cost you far less than what you're spending on it. But here's the infrastructure that I'm going to be able to give it back to you. I will take that. I'll give you a check because right now you don't have the balance sheet. You don't have the capital that supports that can extract itself out of that particular So asset. you take the ownership out of the equation. We take the ownership. What do you I do with cash. I give you cash. And what do you do with the cash? And what I do with the cash is I go and improve all those schools. I give them all the most amazing facilities, the tech, the labs, the computer science centers, whatever the case might be, the sports facilities, right? Remember now we're saying that it's now privately owned. I'm going to get those kids into the school at 6 a.m., not at 8 a.m. right now. You go to any of the schools after 3 p.m., there's no one there. You go to any of the schools on weekends, there's no one there. What makes you think that you shouldn't be going to school on a weekend? I can then take that asset. I can then do something better with it because I can put three uh, uh, customers into that particular asset. The government can come in in the morning, maybe in the afternoon. I can put in the adult allocation people or anyone who needs a facility later in the evening. But... The government isn't losing anything because they will have a put or call option on that particular asset in case they want to deal with the unions who are going to scream you're selling government assets. You can always buy it back from me. But we know today what is the coupon price on which you're going to buy me back. If I say I'm going to get an 8% return or a 10% return, you know today that I gave you $450 billion and if you want your asset back, give me my 450 billion times 10% times the number of years compounded interest that I've actually held the asset. And that kills the noise around what... And take that money. No, no, let me finish this part, Jeremy. Take that money. We know what one of the root causes is. The lack of high quality teachers, especially in the black schools. Pay people away. Get rid of the people that you don't need in the system. Because the argument that we're always going to be making is you can't have a, a 10 problem and then you, you resource it with a 4 solution. In other words, a 10 problem requires a 10 solution. You've got a lot of teachers that ought not to be there because they don't provide the level of resource requirement that is there. Take 25 billion of that money. Be very generous to kill the noise with the unions in terms of giving people retrenchment packages. Even if it means you must pay people for the next five years, it's fine. Get rid of them. Go anywhere else in the world and find the best teachers that can come and teach those kids. And solve the problem not just at tertiary, but solve it at early childhood development. These kids, for instance, who don't have the right resources at home because of poverty and other things, create the boarding facilities for them. It's ambitious, it's bold, 
it's a dream, but it's not something that cannot be done because we've got the asset. And I tell you, we've got sufficient financial engineers in this country to make this deal to work. I was trying to interrupt you because I was going to push you on skills and unions. Yes. But I think you've dealt with that (laughs) issue. You did raise one issue, but I I want to make a comment on this. I like your thinking about weekends. I was on a trip to India a couple of years ago and driving around on a Saturday afternoon to see school children in school uniforms. And I asked the guide and he looked at me with some bewilderment and he said, well, of course we go to school at a weekend. Mm Why not? Exactly. Uh, and we tend to shut things up at lunchtime on a Friday. Yeah. I absolutely, uh, I absolutely acknowledge that. What is preventing this big schools plan from happening then? I'll make a suggestion. Sure. Because Christo Visa in the last Fix SA podcast, I think that the same point was made by your contemporary at Business Leadership South Africa, Busi Mavuso, who said, we live in a forest of red tape. So my question to you, Alan Mukoki from Saki, how do you cut through that? How do you make that happen? Well, you know, one of the arguments that we've always been making around how you look at the the entity which is called the state is that you can't do any of this work unless you accept and you implement the policy of a meritocracy. The meritocracy is fundamental. When I counted those eight countries, one of the fundamental things is they look at the Human Development Index and they said we're going to get the best people to come and run things for us. So we need to be able to be very brutal in that understanding. If it requires a step change in legislation in the Constitution of the Republic, so be it. Because right now, you know, what you have right now, you've got people, they're going to participate in a political party system, they get elected, they go to parliament, and the system itself is producing the quality that you have today. When it comes to things like civil servants, DGs, DDGs, we've made this particular argument as well. The pitch of that particular job has got to be at the same level as the top 40 JSE C-suite level executives. They're running a 1.8 trillion business for crying out loud. Why do you think you should be paying uh, C-suite level people maybe between 5 and 8 million rand a year, but when it comes to looking at a DG for public enterprises or finance or whatever the case might be, you want to pay those people 1.8 million. So you're going to get a 1.8 million person when the job requires a 5 million person. So we need to change all of that. We need to be very bold. It's not too many departments, less than maybe 35 government departments. So you really are talking about a a small community of maybe 150 people. There's not the political will to do that in this country. We we are comfortable with political inertia. That's it. But that's what we need to be able to change. We need to be able to say these ideas can only work in an environment where we drive the change, even if the immune system attacks, and Aslim always advises, build a change and innovation dynamic team on the edge of the organization, not inside. Because if we don't do these things, 100 years from now, All of us won't be alive, but what kind of country are we actually going to leave for those who are actually going to come after us? So we have to take these bold decisions because there's nothing else that you can do about it. I'm glad, by the way, we say that the government isn't listening. They are now talking about the professionalization of the civil service. And one of the early organizations that actually pitched that particular idea to them to say, this is the way you should be able to do it. That goes for things like cabinet, for instance. We've got to be able to put the pressure on saying it doesn't matter what political party is in charge. When it comes to the appointment of people who are going to be in cabinet, here is a template of what they should be able to meet. Because those jobs, as I said earlier on, most of them are like 10 jobs. You can't have a four and a five person doing a 10 job because it's not actually going to happen. So we need to be able to change that issue around a meritocracy and be very brutal and non-compromising in the way we actually want to build it. You don't think we've left this too late? 
No, we have not. There's time. The country isn't going anywhere. It's going to be here for the next one million years. So it can never be too late. And people say, when we're is not the worried right about the next million years, we're worried about the next five years. That's what, if you have a, an agenda for change and renewal and transformation, as we say in this particular case, right? People will let you on to what you are actually trying to do. Let me, just this one idea around building a meritocracy, that in itself, if you are very determined in terms of what you're going to do, will give South Africa a change in its uh, credit rating immediately. Because it's all about people, it's all about culture, it's all about values. So the fact that you're pronouncing that we are now, from now on, going to change the way we do the appointments into the civil service, this is our template. It's very, very, very recognized, it's very credible, it makes a lot of sense. Immediately that generates a lot of excitement in the system. When we say we're going to change the education and how we look at education, we're going to allow universal access to high quality education, it begins to change. The people who go into public education should have exactly the same kind of quality as you see in any of the top private schools, if not even better. When you drive your program in that particular direction, it creates a lot of excitement. It creates a lot of hope that you were asking me about earlier on. So we've looked at education. You've come up with one big, bold, audacious idea. Yes. So many of the guests on this series have spoken about a better capacitated civil service, in other words, to get the flywheel exactly. of the political economy moving. What else is keeping you up at night? What else needs to be fixed? The strategy around what are we going to do in terms of driving our agenda for development and renewal in the rest of the continent, starting with our own region. It is a pipe dream that South Africa believes they can solve their big problems of poverty and employment and economic growth if they are not actually investing mm. in the region. It's not going to happen. Our markets are out there. These big countries I just mentioned, especially the South Asian countries, they are the ones who are actually fundamentally responsible today for driving capital deployment and investment in many of the big Asian countries today, including Bangkok and Thailand mm. and, and Vietnam and places like that. Because they understood here is a challenge. South Africa is the one that has got the capital, the management capability, the technology and the consulting capability to be able to drive that agenda for change. Because if we invest in malls in Zimbabwe, in Europe, Uganda, in Zambia, in the Great Lakes region, what does it do for us? It creates markets for our own businesses and our own economy. And if you drive at that particular level, and there's money there, by the way, because there's money in the ground, but there's no infrastructure to make sure that you can move the copper, you can move mm. the bitumen, you can move any of the... So peak. what stops us from taking a more pan-African approach? Then? As I said, meritocracy, because you need to have the right people who have the right ideas who are smart enough to understand that we are the people who must go and open opportunities there so that we can drive economic opportunities for our own eco uh, businesses. Here in so South the Africa. right people, but what are they afraid of? Is it too risky? It's too risky at this particular point in time, and I think that we're not sharing the right ideas in terms of what does even a right person mean. In other words, we always talk about right person, right values, right culture. We need to be able to infuse that philosophy into the way in which we do things. Because the more we share these kinds of ideas around vision, around how you want to build a sustainable, successful country over the next three, four decades, we're not the, the only people. You know, you look at what Deng is doing, you look at what Xi Jinping is doing in China today, and you look at many, many other people in terms of what they've actually been doing. The templates exist elsewhere in the world. We, we're not unique in any way. And let's learn from what they were able to do. But at the center, it's always going to be people development, meritocracy, skills, competences. Absolutely. So 
of building a more robust meritocracy, looking at radical changes as far as education is concerned, yes. bold investment beyond our borders. Especially all, in infrastructure, yes. All, all well and good, Alan. How do we make sure then that we stay the course? We stay the course. You know, when you've got the right people, you've got the right culture. People are seduced and people love success because when they see you succeeding, it creates in itself a high level of spirit and high level of energy. It energizes people in a way that is much more bigger because people can see the changes are actually real. They're actually happening in real time. People are getting jobs. People are getting skilled because there are so many things and so many opportunities that we have. There are so many things that we're importing that we could be making ourselves. The only reason we're not making mm. these things ourselves, we sell our raw materials outside, we sell our agri-products outside, and then we import the same uh, uh, finished goods. If we then make these things here in South Africa, it starts to say to people, wow, this place is beginning to function. And other people outside of South Africa start to say, there's something happening there. Well, you can't expect foreign investors to invest in your country to build plant and equipment if you yourself are not a market. It doesn't work like that in investment. Your organization not only represents uh, big business in South Africa, but before we started taping this podcast, we were talking about the so-called mom-and-pop outfits, yes. the energy that drives the economy. The SMMEs, yes. so important uh, as far as this country is concerned. Are they sharing your optimism? I'm assuming as you talk to me, you are preaching the same gospel to them. Do they share it or are they saying, listen, enough is enough? I'm tired. It's just too insurmountable a problem to fix what we have already. Yeah, entrepreneurs by their very nature are not people who are discouraged very easily. I, I think that uh, you'd find that more in formal corporates maybe because those people are more like professionals, they're accountants and engineers, but people who actually went out of their way that I'm going to start my own business, they do that because they themselves are dreamers, they themselves have hope generally. And all that they would actually be saying is we're frustrated, we need help. So what do they want? They want government to come through for them. They want finance. They need skills and development. They need opportunities for business. But they don't have the skills themselves to be able to say, here's an opportunity. Why don't we start? I'll give an example, for instance, with this thing called AGOA, the Africa Growth Opportunities Act, where South Africa and the rest of the continent, for instance, have got huge numbers of categories of goods that can be exported in the U.S. duty-free. Now, you look at the car sector, for instance, and the guy used to run a Ford Motor Corporation. He would say to me, I make the Ford Motor cars here in South Africa that I export to the United States. But did you know that 60 to 65 percent of the inputs that go into the cars here are still being imported by South Africa? Huge, big opportunity on something like that. Why are we not making the seatbelt? Why are we not making the gearbox? Denial had unbelievable technology that used to be sent to Gripen and Ross Royce to make the gearbox engine. So we have the opportunity to be able to do those kinds of things where we can go to any of the big auto manufacturers to say, give us an offtake. You already have the market. We're just going to talk to the Taiwanese and the Singaporeans to allow us to start and establish this particular type of business. Alan, my late father used to say to me that if you want to fix something, you have to celebrate small increments of progress. Absolutely. Good advice from a very old man. Absolutely. What would, in your opinion, constitute small wins? Because you have tabled so many big ideas today. In the next I don't know, year, 18 months, two years? What, what, what are some of the small let, wins let, that you'd let, like let, to see? Let's say a small win, for instance, in South Africa, you spoke about small business and people not having access mm. to, to finance. Let's have a small win. DFIs need to stop asking black entrepreneurs for own contribution by way of money. 
You and I know this is not going to happen. I've been black all my life, as you can see. I don't know too many black people who would have capital formation that can enable them to do so. Small little win. We say for the DFI, if the business is sound, the people around the business are actually sound, give them the money. Small win. And that would energize that particular sector in a way in which we've never... And I'm not saying be reckless in terms of how you're giving people money. We shouldn't be getting the money. The people who qualify to get the money. I have one concluding question that I put to all the guests. Yes. And bear with me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're a young man, but when you're talking to your grandchildren in 20 years, 25 years' time... What are you going to tell them about the early 2020s? And more importantly, what are you going to tell them as the baton-holding generation to make sure that we don't make the mistakes of the past and that we don't need to fix South Africa, that it's fixed already? Do you know what I'm saying? I understand exactly what you say. I think that the first thing I would tell them is that we lived in exceedingly interesting and risky times. You know, when people talk about the four horsemen of VUCA, they came galloping into town, and that VUCA stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. We dealt with things at that particular level. I'll tell them that there was so much confusion. Uh, there was so much excitement at the same time, but so many people were so disillusioned about what was going on yet the very same people who were disillusioned who became negative are the same people who had all the talents in the world to be able to fix the problem. And I would tell them that I think that there were going, always going to be a few people who saw light at the end of the tunnel, mm. people who had grit, people who understood this is one of the biggest leadership opportunities that you can ever have if you are a person in a leadership position to be able to solve this problem. It's an endowment. People see this as negative. No ways. You're going to find many, many countries where you have this level of excitement in terms of, my goodness, look at the problems that we have. Look at the opportunity to grow and lead in a way that is very decisive. Throw ideas and how we do group dynamic, how we can extract the juice from everybody else that is in this particular country. There is nothing that is as exciting as South Africa, South Africa today with all the challenges that we have. I think that's what I would be able to share with them. Certainly is a voice of optimism. We've touched on some big ideas, meritocracy, a big education plan, and uh, looking beyond our borders to invest in infrastructure. All of that can potentially fix South Africa. It's going to take a Herculean effort. There's no doubt about that. It will require more patience. It will require a lot more mature cooperation between the public and the private sector. Alan McCorkey, thank you very much indeed, Chief Executive Officer of the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. My name is Jeremy Maggs. You've been listening to Fix SA on MoneyWeb, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this Fix SA podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.